Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Welcome to the NextWorks Innovation Talks. I'm your host, Laurence van Eeligem, and today I'm very pleased to introduce David Christian. David is the director of the Big History Institute and a history professor at Macquarie University in Sydney. He's the author of five books, of which Origin Story, A Big History of Everything, is the most recent one. Together with Bill Gates, he founded the Big History Project, which offers a free online high school syllabus in big history. David's 2011 TED Talk, A History of the World in 18 Minutes, which launched the Big History Project, has been seen by almost 11 million viewers. So welcome on the show, David. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Maybe we can start off with a somewhat lighter anecdote. I know that Bill Gates is a big fan of yours, but can you tell our listeners how you first came into contact with him? I taught for eight years in San Diego. And uh, this was late 2008, so just at the beginning of the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. I was in my office, and it was a Monday, and I had lots of very boring administrative work to do, so I was in a very bad mood. (laughs) And the phone rings, and I lifted up, and I said, yes, what? (laughs) And uh, this very nice woman's voice at the other end said, "Um, is this a bad time to call? I said, no, 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 what do you want? And I'm not normally that rude, but I was just in such a bad mood. And it can happen. I could call back later. I said, no, 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 what do you want? And she said, well, actually, I'm calling from Mr. Bill Gates' office. And so I said, <laughs> that must have put a smile on your face. And uh, I met her later, and she was a delightful woman. And she said, you may not know this, but Mr. Gates is a big fan of your work and would like to discuss it with you. And she said, next week, he's coming down to San Diego. And if you can find some time in your busy schedule, (laughs) we'd like to meet you. So I'm very proud of the fact that I got the answer right. And I said, yes, I think I can. (laughs) What happened was I went to a hotel and I had the pleasure of going up to the desk and saying, uh, I'm here to visit Mr. Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. And one of his people came through and led me through lots of corridors and then knocked on a door and Bill opens it and invites me in. And then for two hours, there was just the two of us talking. And Mm -hmm. I have to say, it was delightful. I don't think he would mind me saying he's, you know, he's a nerd. Uh, <laughs> and I'm a nerd. So um, this was two nerds enjoying each other's company. Mm-hmm. Very enthusiastic about big history. He knew what he was talking about because I did this huge course for the teaching company, which mm-hmm. had 42 half-hour lessons, and he listened to the whole thing. Okay. And so we talked about it for almost two hours. And then at the end, he said, so I have a proposal. Please think about it. I think big history ought to be in schools, in high schools. And I immediately agreed. But I had no idea how you would do that. Uh Well, I do have an idea. He said, um, you know, I've had a fair bit of experience of introducing online courses. So if you're interested and if you agree, I would like to work with you on building a free online course and we'll make it really good. I said I was going back to Australia, but he said, fine, it becomes a a US-Australia project. I was very much involved in the first year or two. Mm -hmm. 
in designing the basic structure of the course. But for five or six years, I've had very little involvement. But it seems to be flourishing the States. Mm -hmm. And also, by the way, in the Netherlands, um, where it was taught for many years at the University of Amsterdam by a friend of mine, Fred Speer. And so for the people who are listening, where can you find this course? And is it free for everybody or...? I would say the quickest way to get in is, I won't try and give you a URL, mm-hmm. just Google Big History Project. Okay. The content has changed a fair bit, so I'm now no longer terribly familiar with it. Mm-hmm. So what got you hooked on the idea of big history and origin stories? Because I believe that you started out by thinking about a history of the human world and then concluded that you had to go much bigger. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I'm a Russian historian. Mm-hmm. My graduate work was in England, but I got my first job at Macquarie University and I taught Russian history. And this was during the Cold War. Russian Soviet history was very important because it was like teaching about the dark side for my student. Mm-hmm. I had been a student in the Soviet Union, so I felt it was really important to help people understand that real people live there. If you live in the Soviet Union, you have to struggle with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it didn't mean I necessarily gave a totally positive picture of the Soviet Union, but I certainly tried to give a sense of the Soviet Union as a real world. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that very much. But after about 15 years, really, I began to think more and more that in a world divided by nuclear weapons. I remember as a school kid living through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. I really thought I was going to be blown up. In such a world, we need to be teaching about the history of humanity, Mm -hmm. not the history of nations. Because to teach the history of nations is to build patriotism, and patriotism can always turn into tribalism. Mm -hmm. And in a world with nuclear weapons, the last thing you want is for people to be identifying with their society over everything else. Mm -hmm. I began to think it's actually really weird that in schools and universities everywhere in the world, we don't teach the history of humanity. Mm -hmm. A history, say a history of England or a history of Russia or a history of America, it's a very powerful thing for creating a sense of community. It's an origin story. Mm National histories are origin stories, and they're very powerful. And if you believe in your origin story, you will eventually sign up as a soldier and fight for your country. Mm-hmm. So I thought what we need is an origin story for humanity so that people will sign up with the challenges of humanity. Well, today, those challenges are things like climate change or mm-hmm how to avoid future pandemics, or how to avoid extremes of inequality when we have all the resources so that no one need live in poverty. So these are human challenges. And we need to see them through the lens of an identity in which I think of myself not as English or Australian, Mm -hmm. but as human. Mm -hmm. So the question for a historian, because history is very powerful in creating these identities, is Mm -hmm. how do you create a history of humanity that is as powerful emotionally as a history of the United Kingdom? And I began to think, how would you do it? Mm -hmm. And the first thing, maybe particularly because I lived in Australia, the first thing I realized is 
The first step is you have to take the Paleolithic era seriously. Mm -hmm. Humans have been around for at least 200,000 years. Most of the time we talk about the last 200 years. That's mm -hmm. disgraceful. You know, it excludes 99% of human mm -hmm. history. You need to begin with the Paleolithic. And okay, people say, yeah, but well, we don't know much about the Paleolithic. True, but we need to try to say what we can say. And actually, we know more and more about the Paleolithic. I started thinking, I wonder if you could construct a university course that did this. And I started mm -hmm. thinking, so how would it begin? You'd begin by saying, okay, humans appeared 200,000 years ago. Then I thought, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. How did humans appear? So we need to talk a bit about evolution. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about humans as a biological species. And then I thought to do that properly, we need to talk about the evolution of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. Now suddenly I'm into biology and I'm into paleontology. And then I thought to do that, you have to talk about the planet. You have to talk about the geology because the preconditions for life are geological and chemical and astronomical. And I thought, so I have to talk about how planet Earth formed and how the continents move and so on. So I thought, oh, damn, I'm, I'm now into biology, I'm into geology. And then I thought, but I'm into astronomy because I have to figure out how the solar system formed four and a half billion years ago. And nowadays, what's remarkable is that since the middle of the 20th century, we have these stories. In the early 20th century, we didn't. Now we have stories and we have dates because of radiometric dating. So I went further and further back to talk about the evolution of the solar system. I have to talk about stars and then eventually back and back to the Big Bang. I realized you can't go beyond the Big Bang, uh -huh. at least not empirically. You know, if you're Carlo Rovelli, okay, you have fancy ideas about it, but I'm a historian, so I want facts. So I thought, uh -huh. okay, it's a very simple question. Could you teach a university course that begins with the Big Bang? ends today and makes a coherent story through a kind of series of bureaucratic accidents, which I won't bore you with, <laughs> say, of departmental politics. I wanted to stop teaching a big first-year course. No one else wanted to teach it. And I said, I'll teach it, but you have to let me teach this course. And they all thought, oh, my God, it'll be <laughs> embarrassing. But they let me teach it and as a first-year course. So that meant I had 300 students. So then I thought, what have I done? I invited lecturers from different departments. Some of the lectures were good. Some were great. Some were not so good because everyone was struggling. And the first two or three years, I would say the course was a bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. But the thing that kept me going was that the smart students loved it. They knew it was a mess, but they loved what we were trying to do. Over a number of years, I sat in on every lecture. So I slowly became more and more familiar with all of this. And then the coherent story began to become clear in my own mind. And eventually I started giving more of the lectures. And then when I went to San Diego in 2000, I gave all the lectures. You lose something in expertise, but what you gain is coherence because there was a single story there. Then, really, based on my lectures, I published a book on big history, Maps of Time, which began with my lectures. And so, and I'm, not, so I'm not the person to have done this, by the way. There are other people who've approached the same project uh -huh. in different ways. Not many, because the resistance to this sort of large-scale synopsis is huge.
It's a bit of a renaissance man project, isn't it? Trying to have an overview of all the existing knowledge, which is actually very difficult. Yeah, except people say renaissance man. Mm -hmm. And in the modern context, that always sounds as if you're shooting for the impossible. Mm -hmm. I'd put it much more strongly than that. Good knowledge, as someone like Carlo Rovelli knows, as scientists understand this, I think better than people in the humanities, Good knowledge does two things. It takes the details very, very seriously indeed. But then it does a second thing. It tries to take all that information and assemble it into a coherent story. Now, it's as if since the early 20th century, modern education has been very good at that first task. Mm -hmm. You know, all the great advances of the 20th century depend on that. Mm -hmm. And then just occasionally we were forced to see the big picture. So Big Bang cosmology kicks in, plate tectonics, the big paradigm for the earth sciences, modern versions of Darwinism with genetics thrown in kick in. So there were big picture stories, mm -hmm. but it's as if the very success of scholarship in the 20th century means that people have come to define good knowledge as detailed expert knowledge, which is only half the story. There are some people who've been saying this. E.O. Wilson has been saying this in a book, wonderful book called Consilience. And the way he puts it is to say that modern science, specialist area after specialist area, has done fantastic research. In fact, we've got to the point now where many problems have been sort of solved within the disciplines. Mm -hmm. The big problems now lie between disciplines. But the structures that worked so well for detailed research prevent people from moving across the disciplines. Mm -hmm. Now, I began doing big history when I had tenure. It was fairly safe. The university wasn't going to fire me. It didn't necessarily do good things for my reputation, uh, at least not at first. Mm -hmm. But this sort of project has low prestige in the educational world of today. Yeah. That's such a pity. I think it is. But over the years, I've learned that the barriers to synoptic thinking and research mm -hmm. are very, very powerful. And they're very subtle. I'm a historian of Russia. If I do a lecture on the Big Bang, Some cosmologists think that's insulting. And some people will even make the really stupid comment that you have no right to talk about something unless you've done research in it. Well, mm -hmm. if I had the right to talk about anything I'd not done research on, I couldn't even keep watching history. Mm -hmm. But modern academia does not create enough space for people mm -hmm. who find that what they're good at or what they're interested in is trying to link knowledge across disciplines. I'm fine. I've not paid a price for this. Mm -hmm. But I see young scholars who get interested in big history. And where are the jobs for them? It's a really difficult problem. But how do you think that we really did start to lose this overview of science and knowledge in the world? Because you say that it becomes increasingly specialized, but, but what is the core problem? Did it start when we started to know more and more about the world and then it was too much to know? Or is it a deeper problem? I've written on this and I've got ideas about it. The project that interests me is the project that interested all the Enlightenment thinkers. Mm -hmm. They were so impressed by Newton. Newton 
seem to have shown that problems that seem to be insoluble may actually be open to really good, precise solutions. Mm -hmm. So in the Enlightenment, the hope was that we could extend this sort of knowledge everywhere. And the second hope was that once we had that knowledge, we could do it to improve the life of human beings. I think of big history as simply a modern version of what the Enlightenment was trying to do, or many of the Enlightenment thinkers, certainly the encyclopedists. But in the 19th century, I think two things happened that led to disillusionment with that project. The first was that a sort of explosion of science in the 19th century, and it's what you said just now, in field after field, there was just so much information and so many ideas that people couldn't stay on top of it. The second thing is that the Enlightenment project turned out to be much more difficult than people had thought. Mm -hmm. So in the 19th century, you had a whole series of thinkers who tried to pursue this. So I'm thinking of Hegel, Comte, Marx in his way, Spencer. They tried to sort of unify knowledge. But it's as if the science wasn't quite good enough yet. So what you ended up with in these big systems was often something that was not terribly successful and sometimes, as in social Darwinism, actually dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the grand systems themselves turned out to be not very successful and perhaps dangerous. And as many people have pointed out, social Darwinism is pointing you towards Nazism. Mm -hmm. It was also pointing in other directions. But mm -hmm. So those two things, I think, at the end of the 19th century, what happened, and it happened almost everywhere in the world and quite quickly, is that there emerged a sort of consensus in universities, in research institutes, that the really successful research was the research of people like Pasteur or Robert Koch or Maxwell, people who focused on a particular problem. And they were absolutely right. These were spectacular successes. Mm -hmm. So this is the way to build knowledge. Abandon the project of trying to combine, link everything. Mm -hmm. And then you get people like Einstein. Now, Einstein actually did link a hell of a lot of knowledge. So the idea of linking knowledge is always there in the background. Mm -hmm. But in the 20th century, universities, research institutes and schools everywhere in the world adopted this model, and it was very successful. My argument would be that in some sense, it's a victim of its success. Mm -hmm. I'm not against specialization at all. It really was successful. And I think, in fact, all we need is something very simple. I'm not arguing for ending the specialization at all. What we need, I think, is to create a bit of space so that the specialists and their students can occasionally look right across the disciplines. Mm -hmm. Because I think, actually, what that would do is it would synergize work within the disciplines. So this is E.O. Wilson's point. It would raise new questions. In fact, what you are saying that science in general, so what we know of the world in general, would evolve faster if there were more people who could have maybe an overview or more links between the, the specializations. Is that what yeah, you mean? I think so. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I have learned over 30 years of trying to do this is the remarkable power of these structures of specialization. Mm -hmm. We have made some progress with big history. I mean, with Bill Gates' support, it's now being taught in probably a thousand schools in the US. That's remarkable. But it's also very clear we've hit a plateau. You know, we have a journal, but my own history colleagues 
in some ways resist all of this more than anyone else. I, you know, I've heard historians say, look, I, you know, I've struggled to become an expert on German history. And you want me to start learning about the Big Bang? Mm -hmm. Dear God, you know, give me a break. Well, I know my own teaching of Russian history has been shaped by all the ideas I've got from big history. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can also understand their, their point of view. Maybe we can head back in a slightly different direction. So one of the core ideas of big history is, I think, that the universe started out as a surprisingly simple place and that in spite of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, it gradually became increasingly complex. So can you walk us through that? Well, let me slightly restate that argument. It's not that the universe became more complex, mm -hmm. because I think you could make the case that the universe at large scales remains quite simple. To put it more precisely, as the universe evolved, it created many different types of local environments. That's a fancy phrase, but I'm thinking of something like the surface of planet Earth. And in those environments, it was possible for complexity to increase. In most of the universe, it's very simple. It's a vacuum. It's, it's, it's empty. It's dark. But what has emerged is these, what I call Goldilocks environments, in which you have just the right ingredients to allow something interesting and complex to emerge. So then it's a matter of really looking at these Goldilocks environments. And as I was teaching big history, very often as a teacher, the problem is not how to understand something, it's how to explain something. Mm -hmm. And how to explain something to people who have often not very much knowledge of what you're talking about. So I realized that one of the ways of explaining this was to just take a series of particular examples of how complexity suddenly increased. Mm -hmm. So that's how the idea of thresholds emerged. Mm -hmm. You know, if you wanted to, you could list a thousand thresholds in the history of the universe, moments at which something more complex appeared. But as a teacher, you know, I focused on eight thresholds. And that worked pretty well. You know, it even allowed students to say, why isn't this a threshold? You know, and I could say, well, it could be. The idea of thresholds. So to take life, for example, you can ask, what was it? about the early planet Earth that allowed life to evolve? Mm -hmm. And we don't have a perfect answer to that question. We don't mm -hmm. have a perfect answer to the question how life evolved. But we do know many bits and pieces of the answer. Today, as you know, people are also hugely obsessed with information and data. But when did it first become a value? Was it, I don't know, when DNA started to accumulate information? Was it when we developed brains and we could learn? Was it when we developed language and we could, like you said, share the information and there's collective learning? So can you maybe walk us through the brief sub-history of information in the larger context of big history? Well, in, in big history, there are a lot of central terms for which we don't yet have a perfect definition. Complexity is one, mm -hmm. information is another. It gets used in very different ways. So all I can really tell you is how I think the idea of information works in big history. Mm -hmm. What I would say is really pretty banal. It, it, it works once you get living organisms. Living organisms have purpose and goals. Unlike the sun doesn't have a purpose. You know, planet Earth, regarded geologically, doesn't have a purpose, nor does a rock. But living things do. 
And they have a purpose in the sense that they seem to try to do things. Now, there's a very good reason for this, which is natural selection. The way natural selection works is that the organisms that do the best job of trying to survive and reproduce are the organisms that survive and reproduce, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where you get purpose. In other words, if I was a bacterium and I said, I don't care if I live or die, what's going to happen is I'm going to die and I'll have no descendants. Or if I do have descendants, I'll have descendants who inherit my genes for not caring about the future. So they will die off. So the genes that survive are the genes of organisms that act as if they have purpose. Mm -hmm. The purpose is very simple. It's to survive and reproduce. But to do that, you need information. In other words, you need to try to access ideas about what is going around you. So if you're a, a bacterium, you need to know that moving in this direction is a bad idea because it's too hot. So there's information. So I think the idea of information begins to make sense once you have living organisms. Mm -hmm. So even the simplest of organisms needs information and it has mechanisms built in by natural selection that enable it to acquire relevant information, to assess that information and to use it. So an E. coli bacteria, if it figures out that there's something bad ahead, will change direction. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest use of information. Now, as evolution has happened, you've got larger and more complex organisms, and the task of survival requires more information. So no wonder they evolve with more powerful mechanisms for acquiring information, storing information, assessing that information, and then acting on the basis of that information. Mm -hmm. So living organisms have a relationship to their environment. Rocks don't really have a relationship. They're passive, but living organisms do. And that relationship requires them to get information about the environment. Now, we humans are just fantastically good at doing this. Mm -hmm. and information is power. Mm -hmm. If I know how to make an atomic bomb, that makes me powerful or to farm a piece of land. It means I can get more food out of the environment than I could otherwise. So information is power. So if you have a species like us, in which information accumulates from generation to generation, that species is going to become more and more powerful collectively. Mm -hmm. That's where we are today. We're so powerful that what we do will shape the biosphere. It will mm -hmm. affect how many species there are in 50 years' time, because the number of species is declining very fast because mm -hmm. we humans are taking up so much resources, there's no space left for others. It'll affect global climates. And global climates have stayed for 4 billion years within the narrow range that's necessary for water to exist in liquid form. That's remarkable. Mm -hmm. If we mess with the mechanisms that maintain the right temperature on Earth, we're messing with the mechanisms that allowed life to survive on Earth. Information is power, but power can also be misused. And maybe we can see that in some aspects today, you talked about global warming and the extinction of species, that we're not always using that information in the right way. Absolutely. And that's why I made the point about complexity being fragility. Mm -hmm. Complex things have a tendency to break down, and they can mm -hmm. break down very suddenly. The payoff to all of this is not necessarily pessimism. It's 
if you understand the story correctly, in my own belief, then eventually what you understand is the challenge that faces humanity as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so there's a great moral debate there that I think has not been held and needs to be held, which mm-hmm. is about can there be a broad global consensus mm-hmm. about the sort of world we would like to see in a hundred years time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the thing is, it, to some people, the idea of a global consensus sounds crazy, but we already have many parts of it. Think of the UN millennial goals. There's a lot of moral disagreement, but there's also fundamental agreement on things mm-hmm. like the importance of health, mm-hmm. the importance of protecting children. And this takes me back to the idea of a, the sense of a sort of common humanity We need to think very clearly about where we want to be in 100 years' time Mm -hmm. because this is out of my thinking about the future. All future thinking begins with thinking where you want to be. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is to be clear about those goals and now we have such fantastic skills Mm -hmm. to find the way of doing them and we already know many of the pathways. One of the rules um, that we already talked about of the history of the world is this increasing complexity But many people today also believe that technology is changing the world faster than ever before and is making it more complex. But how do you perceive that? Is the human world also becoming increasingly complex? And is that tendency speeding up? Or are we just looking too closely? Because you have a very broad view, of course. Oh, no, no, I agree. I mean, things are speeding up. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that speed up, you can see throughout the whole of human history. Change was very slow in the Paleolithic. There very good reasons. You have tiny communities. Sometimes those communities vanish. Information is shared between small groups of people. Then slowly things start to accelerate in the last 10,000 years after the mm-hmm. appearance of agriculture. And, and now things are moving at warp speed. So there's no doubt about the acceleration. But it's not technology. Technology doesn't have a mind. Technology doesn't have a purpose. It's humans. Mm-hmm. They invented the technology and they use the technology. Mm-hmm. So, as an educator, I think this is the payoff for the story for young people. You can say to young people that you live at a turning point in the history of planet Earth. This is not melodrama, this is real. Mm-hmm. Never before. When I was a kid, humans didn't control the planet. Now they do. If someone says we don't control it, well, the simple proof is we have nuclear weapons. It's not impossible that we could ruin much of the biosphere in 24 hours. We have the power to do it. We have the power to transform the biosphere. There's there's no doubt about that. So this is the moral challenge. Mm -hmm. We can achieve, I think, a broad consensus on where we'd like to be in 100 years' time. Mm -hmm. That won't be easy, but, but there is a broad consensus. So now we need to be using all our skills and all our knowledge and all our information in order to figure out how to do it. And there are two challenges. One is technological. And my own belief is that the technological challenge is the easy one. We know about sustainable fuel energy. The really difficult one is the human one, the political one, mm-hmm. negotiating agreement on these things. And the current moment of the, the COVID pandemic is it's going to be very interesting to watch the politics of this. Will this lead to increased global collaboration Or will the suffering caused by the pandemic lead to a kind of reassertion of local chauvinism? Mm -hmm. In Australia, there's a lot of debate about the fact that for Australia, this crisis is an opportunity 
because eventually the government is going to have to start investing money mm -hmm. to get the economy moving. Now, here's a wonderful opportunity to invest in renewables, renewable energy of various kinds. Australia has wonderful opportunities for this. Mm -hmm. Will the government go in that direction? Because there's lots of evidence that that is the quickest way to bring back jobs in mm -hmm. Australia. Will they go in that direction? I don't know. Because the one thing that's very unpredictable about the world is what humans do mm -hmm. uh, and what politicians do. I have maybe just one last question. Um, my company Nextworks helps companies innovate. And you could say that innovation is also some form of creation and evolution comparable to the creation and evolution of the world, but obviously at a much, much smaller scale. But I find it fascinating to see that the rules that play at such an immense scale also seem to play at a much smaller scale. Like I don't know, the Goldilocks conditions, for instance, that Silicon Valley had the perfect Goldilocks conditions to become an innovation hub because it had investors, university, uh, non-conformist culture from people from the flower power era, or there's the fact that you say that each threshold is not caused by something brand new, but by a combination of existing things into something new. So that's in fact how people innovate. They combine existing things into something new. So the rules of the universe at scale seem to apply on very different levels. Do you agree about that? I agree completely, but the other component is purpose. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, okay, in retrospect, we can see all of that. Mm -hmm. You can't see it in prospect. No. You couldn't see it ahead. So you can't predict Goldilocks conditions. One thing we can be certain about is that in general terms, we are fantastically innovative as a species. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, if there's an innovation that we're very close to, I would say there's a very good chance it's going to happen. So we're very good at innovation. What we're not so good at is purpose. Mm -hmm. Was it such a great innovation to build hydrogen bombs? <laughs> very clever. Really, it may be that the innovations we really need are going to be in simpler areas like vaccinations, alleviating poverty, reducing the staggering material inequality. My personal feeling is technological innovation is not the fundamental problem. Mm -hmm. It's political and social innovation, mm -hmm. uh, finding new ways of organizing society and beginning with looking for some sort of moral consensus, which the United Nations already offers us. You, if you read the Millennial Goals, it's hippie stuff and it, it's wonderful. They mm -hmm. say it all very clearly. and Every nation on earth has signed off on those. So we have the beginnings of a consensus. Mm -hmm. What is really needed, I think, it's a purpose and it's the politics that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. Innovation with a sense of purpose is a, a great note to uh, end our conversation on. So thank you so much for joining us on the Nextworks Innovation Talks, David. I really Thank enjoyed you. talking to you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it too, Lawrence. This was Nextworks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events. <laughs>